Uh, If you would open your Bibles with me, uh, we are in Ruth chapter 3, as Hugh mentioned. If you're using one of those blue Bibles on the seats there, you should find that on page 128. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, please uh, take that blue one home with you. Ruth chapter 3, and we are beginning at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk... And his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now, it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. So let me ask you this question. What do you need right now? Think about where you're currently at in your life. And what needs you have? Kids, what do you need right now? 
a snack, some food, a new bike. Adults are a little bit more self-aware. No offense, kids. We know what needs we are actual needs in our life. In the 1940s, uh, American psychologist Abraham Maslow came up with this idea, you may have heard, heard of it, called the Maslow's, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Have you guys heard of this? It's like a, a pyramid. At the bottom, it's got you know, um, food, shelter, clothing. It goes up through family, health, uh, then intimacy, close friendship, and then the, the, the pinnacle of it is self-actualization, being the, the, the best, the very best version of me I could possibly be. Now, as Christians, our hierarchy should look a bit different than that. So, again, what is that top of the hierarchy for you? What is your greatest need? And what if you're hopelessly power, powerless to get that need for yourself? to fulfill that need. Well, this morning in Ruth 3, we'll see two characters, Naomi and Ruth, who know what they need. They need redemption. They're in poverty. How will they get this? Well, I've broken it down into four sections. You see in your screen there? Set your eyes on the Redeemer. Go to your Redeemer. See your Redeemer's response. And wait on your Redeemer. So as I said, we pick up this story. Uh, their short-term needs have been provided for in chapter 2. They've got enough food to last them for a few months. God's miraculously cared for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. And Naomi has had this heart change. Remember at the beginning of the story, she, she despised God. She acknowledged his sovereignty, but blamed him for all of her suffering and her circumstances. And she moved to praising God and thanking him for his merciful provision and providence. But weeks have gone by since the events in chapter 2. There was this amazing encounter with Ruth and Boaz and the cog started to click for Naomi. She thought that, hey, this, this, this is our ticket out of here. This is our salvation. But it seems like it hasn't really progressed. There was this amazing encounter. Ruth got some food and it's now the end of the harvest and nothing's gone. Nothing's, nothing's moved it along. So Naomi hatches a plan. She says to, to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative, in whose young woman you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Naomi sees her need, and she sees the solution. It's right there in front of her. All, all of this is going to be resolved with Boaz. It's interesting to note this change of heart that happens in Naomi from running away from her sufferings and Running away to Moab in chapter 1, now she's sticking around in Israel and saying, here it is, here's what God has provided for me, here's our ticket out of here. And there's this change in Naomi as well, where in chapter 1, sorry, in chapter 2, Naomi's bitter, she's upset, Ruth is the one saying, hey, can I, can I seek your help? 
Let me go into the field. Yeah, reach up the two. Let me go into the field and care for you. Now, this is Naomi taking initiative, saying, hey, Ruth, actually, let me, let me care for you this time. I have an idea. So Naomi's initi initiating this care for Ruth. And it's worth noting that there's some genuine changes happened in Naomi's heart, and it's led to a genuine care for people around her. So Naomi's seen God's provision in chapter 2. She's seen Yahweh's um, providing through Boaz. She knows this isn't a coincidence, and she's got her eyes firmly locked onto Boaz. She's, it would be ridiculous for her to say, we need redemption, let's start, uh, let's start door knocking. No, no, she's seen God's providence in her life, and it's in Boaz. Now again, think about your knees. Think about your circumstances. Where will you go? Where have you gone in the past? This can be a broad, you know, in your anxieties, where do you run to? Is it comfort in television? Is it trying to sleep the day away? What about a need for a clear conscience when you sin? Is it just completely blocking out anything else and just trying to focus on whatever the task is in front of you? What about patience with our kids? Where do we look for courage to share the gospel? Where do you look when you need energy to write a sermon? In the midst of your despair, where do you go for your hope and your peace and your joy? This is an example here with Naomi seeing God's faithfulness in the past, and she's expecting it for the future. As should we. God has been faithful to you. Trust him in your current circumstances. If you're struggling to think about how God has been faithful to you, look at the cross. Your greatest need being met. So Naomi's plan is fixed on Boaz, and she gives Ruth these instructions. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See him winnowing barley tonight at the, th at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Go, I'll cover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, the whole point of all these directions that Naomi is giving Ruth is to get Ruth and Boaz one-on-one. -on -one. They've had a chance to chat face-to-face -face a little bit in the field in chapter 2, but there hasn't been a chance for a one-on-one -on -one connection where this chance for redemption might be able to come about. But what's really interesting in this language here, we, we probably don't see it as much in the English, but this is a little bit risque, this kind of language here. Naomi wants the right thing for Ruth. She wants redemption. It's easy to interpret these directions as trying to go about it the wrong way. So, shower, get dressed, put on something nice, go down at night. Seems reasonableness instructions. But the words to lie down, to uncover, 
The word feet in Hebrew is often used euphemistically. And on top of that, there's all sorts of accounts of Israel, um, God telling Israel off for their sin about the women that would visit the threshing floor in the evenings to offer their services to the laborers. And we know that this is in the time of judges. We know that sin is rampant. This is easily could be interpreted as, hey, Ruth, go down and seduce Boaz. Then he'll be forced to redeem you. And don't forget that Ruth is a Moabite. Now, the Moabites only came about because Lot's daughters got him drunk and seduced him. So a, a, a messy nation. And Naomi is from the tribe of Judah, who, if you've read Genesis 38, is also another messed up story about a daughter-in-law and her father bringing about the descendants of Judah. So this could easily be interpreted with all those negative connotations. But it's not super clear. It's just ambiguous enough. Naomi could simply be saying, you've been in the field. Go shower. You should get changed and go down to Boaz. Don't interrupt him when he's sleeping. Don't interrupt him when he's having his dinner. He's a worthy man. When he lies down, then he'll be alone. Then you can go and talk to him. It could be as harmless as that. So I'm, I'm not saying we should interpret it one way or another. I'm saying we can't really interpret it either way. We have to leave it ambiguous. And the story is building tension. What's going to happen when Ruth goes down? Is this going to be uh, seducing Boaz and trying to take advantage? Or is this going to be an honorable interaction? I know we just read the chapter, but at this point, we don't know. So there's this tension here. How, how's Boaz actually going to interpret this? Is he going to interpret it as an act of seduction? You know, there's this, there's this pattern in Scripture that we see over and over again, just like this, where God promises something, or there's a good godly desire that's desired, and yet in our sinfulness, we try and bring about that desire in the wrong way. We have it with Abraham trying to fulfill God's promise to him to have a son through his um, concubine. You know, Moses wanting to provide water for the, for the Israelites and striking the rock instead of speaking to it, like God had said. There's all these instances of King Saul trying to offer a sacrifice but doing it the wrong way. Are you guilty of this? Do you want to go about the right thing? Do you want to achieve the right thing, but you go about it the wrong way? Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, it's tax time. We want to provide for our family. We want a good-sized tax return. We want to give money generously to, to those around us. That's a good desire. If we commit tax fraud by not declaring income or putting deductions that aren't really deductions, to get that financial provision, that's bad. Wanting to get to church on time is good, and I wrote this before I knew how many people would turn up after 10, so this isn't targeted at anyone. But wanting to be at church on time is good. Berating your children because they've misplaced their shoes once again, or take their time dawdling to get out the door, or speeding on the way in, that's trying to go about the right thing the wrong way. Desiring marriage is a good thing. 
pursuing an unbeliever as a Christian to get married is going about it the wrong way. What about in our workplace? Being good, good employees, working diligent, diligently is good. But doing that at the, ex, at the expense of your family, at the expense of your spiritual growth, at the expense of commitment to a local church is going about it the wrong way. What about trying to hear what God has to say? Right? As Christians, we want to hear what God has to say. Trying to go about that through an emotional encounter and sitting down and trying to hear God's voice is the wrong way. He's given us his word. Now, again, we can't be entirely sure that Naomi has nefarious ambitions here. But it, it might be the case. Which leads me to my second point. Approach your Redeemer. So Ruth said, that's not right. Where are we? Here. Ruth said, all that you say, I will do. Now, again, more background information here. This is, this is a risky move. Not just because of how Boaz could interpret it, but do you remember when we saw in chapter 2, Naomi was concerned about Ruth going out during the day for fear of her being assaulted, and now she's telling her to go out at night in a sketchy area. But Ruth is bold, she's courageous, she, she's, she's seen God's care and, pro, and protection for her. She's got no reason to start doubting it now. So she goes down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. When you read this, the word heart was merry and drunk easily sticks out. It was the case for me. I'm not sure if it was for you as well. But I think it's easy to, upon first viewing, go, all right, she's waiting for Boaz to be intoxicated and then would, would take advantage of him then. But I don't think that's what's intended to come across here. And let me tell you why. The word heart was merry in this sentence is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And it can mean intoxicated. It absolutely can. But it doesn't always mean intoxicated. So, for example, in Kings 21, when Jezebel was trying to get her husband to get out of bed, he was depressed, with right reason, evil guy. But get up, have some bread, be cheerful, be in a better mood. And I think that's the meaning that's happening in this verse here, is that Boaz is in a good mood. We know that Boaz, has, his character has been emphasized as, as being worthy throughout this whole story. All of his actions have been that of a worthy, godly man. It wouldn't make sense for him to just have this one sentence in the middle of the chapter where he's intoxicated. So we don't have to interpret it as intoxicated. I don't think we should interpret it as intoxicated. I think what's happening is that Boaz has had a great harvest. The Lord has provided. He's enjoying the Lord's provision. And he's been incredibly generous with that provision, as we've seen in previous chapters. And he's had a long day of labor. He's in a good mood. And Ruth goes down to him and sleeps at the, uh, 
Boaz is in a good mood. He lies down and goes and sleeps next to a big pile of grain. Now put yourself in Ruth's shoes here. It's dark. It's late at night. It's a sketchy area with all sorts of sketchy things happening in it. What's she thinking? Is she going to be attacked? Are people going to see her at the threshing floor at night, dressed the way she is, and jump to some conclusions? How would she be feeling about the power difference between a, a woman, a young woman, a foreigner, and this worthy man, wealthy man? What kind of anxiety would she be feeling with a heartbeat pounding in her chest? And yet, boldly, though probably very fearfully, goes over to Boaz and knows that this is worth the risk. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he lay down at the end of the pile of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now what's going to happen? What happens when he wakes up? She, will he think he's getting attacked? Someone's trying to steal his grain? Will she be assaulted? Would all of her reputation that she's been working on be gone in this instance? What if Boaz wakes up and sees her there and he is furious? Well, there goes, there goes Naomi's food. There goes Ruth's general supply of food. Well, there would go their redemption from, their, their chance for redemption from poverty. And there goes all chances of children for Ruth. There goes that chance for rest that her and Naomi were seeking. It's hard to overstate what's on the line in this moment, in this scene, depending on how Boaz responds. But Ruth thinks it's worth the risk. She knows that Boaz is the one that can meet all of her needs, all of Naomi's needs. I think Ruth is still motivated by care for Naomi at this point as well. And I think the simplest answer as to why she's doing this is that she trusts the Lord. In chapter one, she turned from her idols to faith in Yahweh. She leaves her family behind. She leaves her gods behind. She leaves her country behind to go follow the Lord. And she's got faith that God's not going to turn around and give her stones when she asks for bread. And Ruth, Ruth knows her place here. She knows she hasn't earned anything. She doesn't deserve anything. But it's not going to stop her from approaching Boaz. She's seen his character revealed in the previous chapters. She knows enough about what he's like. She's seen it demonstrated in, her, in his kindness towards her. And so I ask you, how do you approach the one who can meet all of your needs? Do you come hopeful? Do you come anxiously? Do you come fearful? Do you come entitled, like you deserve it? What have you seen about God's character revealed through his word and in your life that informs the way that you should approach him? So Boaz is lying down asleep here. He wakes up 
He's startled. He turns over and he says, who are you? This was happening at the threshing floor, which uh, a few weeks ago we got the explanation of what's happening where they throw the, ch the grain in the air and it, the chaff blows away and the grain lands on the ground. So it's, it's, it's designed to be a windy place. So naturally at night, his feet are uncovered. He's cold. He's going, where's that blanket? Ah, there's this woman here. It's a natural reaction. And Naomi confidently told Ruth at the beginning of the story, just go lay there. Boaz will tell you what to do. He's just saying, who are you? He's, he's not giving any instructions. But Ruth responds, I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. This request is the center of this whole chapter. Ruth doesn't wait around for Boaz to tell her what to do. She tells him what to do. <laughs> she deviates from Naomi's plan and she straight up boldly makes her re this request to Boaz. Any ambiguity that may have been there about Naomi's directions are completely washed away with this response from Ruth. She doesn't want a one night encounter. She wants marriage. And this uh, expression, spread your wings, also, if you're using other translations, can be um, spread your garment. That's, that's a marriage proposal in the ancient Near East. And it's actually what God says that he does for Israel in Ezekiel. He makes his vow, he enters into his covenant, and he spreads the corner of his garment over them. Ruth is asking Boaz to answer his own prayer. If you remember to chapter 2, verses 12, in their first encounter, Boaz said, May the Lord repay you for what you have done, under whose wings you have taken refuge. And at, in, here in chapter 3, Ruth turns around and says, Hey, you can answer that prayer. Spread your wings over me. You can be the blessing that you've prayed for, for me. Think about this. How often can God use you to answer the prayers of your brothers and sisters? Think about the prayers that you're currently praying for our, our family here. I want you to think intentionally this week, as, as, you're, as we're praying for one another, how might you answer those prayers? So in our covenant, we've covenanted to pray for one another regularly. I, I actually don't have a copy of the covenant, so I can't look up the exact wording. But Paige and I would do this around the dinner table at, um, before dinner, after dinner? When did we do it? Around the dinner table. And there's an app, if you haven't got it, I'll get you set up, that has the list of all our members on there. And so we just go through alphabetically and we pray for them. And you think about, oh, I, I chat to so-and-so. Yeah, they, were, they said they've been feeling isolated and, and discouraged this week. Let's pray for them. And you pray for them and go, oh, you know, I should, we should have them around for dinner this week. That'd be great. We can be encouraging and hang out with them. Simple things like that. As you're praying for people, it's naturally top of mind and you can think about how you can answer 
those prayers. Also want to apologize because I'm at the front with a microphone that we haven't been doing this very well lately. It's I, I got a new phone a couple of months ago and I downloaded the app again this week because I haven't even used it in that long. So I want to confess and apologize that uh, I need to pray for you guys more. So in that, how will Boaz respond to Ruth's proposal? Ruth has just asked, will you marry me? Will you take on this beautiful financial burden? And Naomi, and possibly any kids. And people have often thought about this story. It's, I'm not sure how often you've heard it. As this beautiful love story between star-crossed lovers, Boaz and Ruth, who lock eyes in a field providentially, and their hearts are set on each other, and then it finally culminates in this chapter where she proposes to him. I, I don't think that's the story that's happening here. Boaz refers to her as my daughter. He's significantly older than her. He's forgotten she even existed. He might have even recognized her in this encounter and said, who are you? If Boaz is going to be taking on the responsibility of redeeming Ruth and Naomi, this isn't going to be because his heart's telling him to because he just loves her so much. This, is, this isn't a, a, a chance to in, a divulge, indulge his self-interest of wanting to marry Ruth. This is going to be costly to him. This is going to split the inheritance for any other kids he might have. This is, again, taking on their financial burden. This would be uh, taking on um, Malon's name, Ruth's dead ex-husband, and any kids they would have would have his name, not, not Boaz. This is going to be a costly thing for, for Boaz to, to answer. And yet, this is an astounding response. Boaz delights in the request. He delights in even being asked to take on this burden. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What a kindness that you've come to me. All that tension all that anxiety, all that fear that Ruth must have been feeling. Could you imagine the relief when Boaz turns and gives this response? Christian, do you know your Savior's response is like this? Do you know he delights and you coming to him. There's this great drama in Ruth where she has to get dressed and put perfume on and come in the dead of night. But with our Savior, our Redeemer, he's just calling us. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. 
I will give you rest. Take your yoke up, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you haven't already read or got a copy of Dane Altland's Gentle and Lonely, he spends the entire book just unpacking this. Highlighting that Christ, our great Redeemer, delights in forgiving those who come to him in faith, just like Boaz does here in Ruth. In it, he quotes Thomas Goodwin, the 17th century Puritan theologian, who puts it this way. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Brother, sister, do you believe that God delights in your requests? in your cries for help. Do you know he joyfully forgives your sin? Do you know you don't need to try and manipulate God to get out of him what you need? Your greatest need? Do you know that you can throw yourself upon his goodness? Do you know that in your sin you can run to him? In your needs you can run to him? And he welcomes us. I'd argue that in this passage, Boaz can delight in Ruth's request because he knows what God is like. He knows the stories of God's mighty acts of redemption for his people. He knows he has heard their prayers and delivered them time and time again through this period of the judges, even though they do not deserve it and they will keep going back to sin. He knows that the very fields that Boaz is sleeping in and his provision has come from has been given to the Israelites by the mercy of God. Not by Boaz's own righteousness, not by his strength, not by his might, not even by the Jews' strength and might, but it's been by God's grace and mercy. And he can turn around and delight in Ruth's plea for mercy Those of us here who have experienced Christ's saving work and mercy and redemption, how much more should this be for us? Do we delight to care for those who are around us because we know how we have been cared for? Do we delight to help those who are in need? Those times where that person, you know, the one I'm talking about, calls you and you know it's going to be a long conversation and you know it's going to take a lot of your energy. And you see that number pop up on your phone. Do you sigh before you answer? Do you pick up the phone at all? What about at your workplace? When that person comes to you and asks you to show them the same thing for the third time this week, 
even though you've got your own things to be doing and you only work part-time so you can prepare sermons, do you joyfully come to their aid? Parents, I know you can think of dozens of examples of this. This morning, since I started preaching, where your kids need you, do you joyfully care for them? knowing how Christ has and is caring for you. Children, when your brother and sister need something, when they need help, do you get annoyed? Do you get upset that they're bugging you when you're trying to do your thing? Or do you, with a happy heart, want to mirror Christ's goodness? Boaz goes on in his gracious response. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask for. For all my fellow townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz will do all that Ruth has asked for. In preparing this, Brayden helpfully pointed out that Boaz actually doesn't have a legal obligation here to Ruth. He has a legal, a legal obligation to Naomi as her redeemer under the law, but he's in no way obliged to care for Ruth or marry her. Otherwise, this whole plan that Naomi came up with would be pointless. She could just walk up to him face to face. Ruth here, um, Leviticus 25b, C, redemption. Boaz treats this whole thing like a leverite marriage. He could have married anyone. If he, if he wanted marriage, um, he could have married anyone he wanted. He was a worthy, wealthy man. And if he wanted to marry Ruth specifically, he didn't have to do it through the redemption channels. He could have just married her. And then he wouldn't have to take on the liabilities of Naomi, of redeeming her land, of carrying uh, Malon's name. But he goes above and beyond what the law, the law requires. He's willing to marry her under the Levitical law that secures Ruth's ex-husband's name that carries on his lineage, that purchases Naomi out of redemption. And he goes on and states that Ruth is a worthy woman. Now, this might have been harder for you guys to pick up on because we've taken so long to get through this book. But there's a progression here on how Ruth is described In Ruth 2.10, in her first encounter with Boaz, she self-identifies as a foreigner. Why would you take notice of me? Then in the next encounter, she's been treated like a servant, even though she isn't one. Why are you talking to me, even though I'm not your servant? Then in 3.9, she's self-identifying as Boaz's servant. I'm your servant, she answered. In 3.10, Boaz is now calling her his daughter. And in 3.11, she is a worthy woman. Which, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew canon, the book of Proverbs comes just before this story. And the Proverbs 31 woman 
is described as a worthy woman, the exact same words that Boaz uses here. This progression from an outcast, from a foreigner, to being a worthy woman, how does that happen? It happens by humility on Ruth's part. It happens by the mercy of God. And it happens by her patiently entrusting herself to Yahweh. That same progression is true of us 3,000 years plus later. Everything is working out perfectly for Ruth at this point. But then we get to Ruth 12, 3.12. And there's a small hiccup. Boaz says, yes, I'm, I'm a redeemer. It's true. But there's actually a relative that's closer to your family than mine. And Boaz's worthy character is on display once again. He wants to redeem Ruth. He wants to redeem Naomi out of poverty. But he knows that there's an actually a closer relative who gets first choice. He's putting his obedience to God above his own desires here. He wants to go about the right things the right way, which may mean actually not getting a chance to marry Ruth. There may be some ambiguity on how we interpret Naomi's plan at the beginning of the chapter, but there's zero ambiguity here with Boaz. No compromise. He's going about it the right way. Obeying God's laws is the most important thing here. As it should be for us. We should obey God's laws and the, the, the good desires within the confines of the pounds which God has given us and trust him with the rest. Again, we can provide for our family without committing tax theft. Tax theft. We, we pray and we be disciplined with our spending habits. We have a budget. We stick to it. We ask our brothers and sisters for help. We be open with where our money is going. And we trust the Lord. We can do what we can to get to church on time. We can put the kids down early, pack the car the night before, get to bed at a reasonable time. And we trust the Lord. We do the speed limit. When we desire marriage, we can commit ourselves to godliness. We can pray that God will be shaping us into the man or woman that would honor him as a spouse. And we trust the Lord provides as he sees fit. As we pray for our children and desire them to submit to their parents, desire them to come and know the Lord, we can do that in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God, giving corrective discipline as necessary, modeling godly living and repentance. Boaz knows that he needs to stick to God's law. However, Boaz's promises that if this other redeemer isn't willing, he swears his life. 
as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you. This is the strongest language he can make to say, I will do this. Regardless of what happens at this point, regardless of what events transpire, Ruth and Naomi are safe. They're secure. The promise has been made. Whether it's this other relative or whether it's Boaz, redemption is coming. Boaz tells Ruth to lie down into mourning. This is likely just for her safety, not wanting to send her out at this part of time, at this time of night. She humbly obeys. She lies down until morning and gets up early before anyone can recognize one another. Planning to leave before it's light enough for people to jump to any kind of conclusions about may or may not have happened on the threshing floor that night. Doesn't want any appearance of evil on her part or Boaz's part. But Boaz stops her before she leaves and says, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. He measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Estimates of this is about 35 kilos of grain. Which again, kind of shows the disparity between an old man and a young enough woman who can carry 35 kilos of grain by herself into the city. Boaz goes over and above with blessing this woman. This guy just can't get any better, right? So there's a chance that this other redeemer might might take responsibility for Ruth and for Naomi. But it's not going to stop Boaz from caring for them. That's not his ticket out. These aren't empty promises that Boaz will care for her. He's putting up some collateral. Take this. This isn't, I'm not trying to make an excuse. Look, provision, you, Naomi. And on top of that, if Ruth, someone stops Ruth on the way home, hey, why are you dressed like this at this place at this time of night? She's got a reason. Oh, I was... I was getting some grain. Ruth leaves that night with full assurance of her salvation. But she's still awaiting that redemption to actually take place. Which leads us to our final point. Wait on your Redeemer. Ruth arrives back with her mother, she says, how did you fare, my daughter? And she tells her all that the man had done for her. The words, how did you fare, is literally the exact same words that Boaz asked Ruth. It's, who are you? Naomi wants to know, are you Boaz's wife? Do you belong to him now? Are we safe? Is it all going to be okay? Imagine Naomi's relief as Ruth recounts the events one after another. This is what he did. This is how he responded. We're safe. There's hope. Look at this. This is the proof. This barley. Can you help me get it inside, please? It's very heavy. And Ruth says, these six measures of barley he gave to me he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Isn't this a beautiful act on Boaz's part? 
He did not want Naomi to be empty-handed. Do you remember in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi gets back from Moab, her husband dead, her son's dead. She, all, all she has is Ruth. Everyone says, it's Naomi, it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. God's against me. Call me bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. I'm sure that Boaz would have word of this, that Naomi wants to be called bitter now. And on that night on the threshing floor, he says, take this for your mother. Don't let it be empty-handed. The Lord, through Boaz, is showing so much care and kindness to Naomi. She's no longer empty-handed. And Naomi replies, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter is settled. He'll settle it by the end of today. Your salvation is coming. Our redemption is coming. Let's just wait. Are we too not in similar circumstances? Our salvation has been accomplished at the cross. Sin has been paid for with the blood of Jesus. And yet here, now, we wait. We wait that glorious day when our risen Lord Jesus Christ calls us home. When we experience our full salvation, we wait that day with Paul when we will be delivered from this wretched body of death. We wait for that day when every wrong will be made right. When every tear will be wiped away. Naomi assures Ruth he will settle the matter today. Peter says to us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Christian, your needs have been met. Our salvation is secure, regardless of what happens now. As members of Christ, as we so often sing, we are called to patiently wait his day. Our greatest need is highlighted in this chapter. Our greatest need is redemption. We, like Naomi and Ruth at the beginning of the chapter, may have some short-term comforts and security, maybe enough food to get through the next few months. But long-term, without redemption, we have no reason for hope. We sin. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. We are separated from a holy God. And he is coming to judge the living and the dead. If we have no redemption secured, we have far more reason to be afraid than two widows in the ancient Near East. 
But just as we are helpless, like these women, we have a great Redeemer who is willing to help us in our need. We have a Redeemer who joyfully hears our requests. We have a Redeemer whose throne we can boldly approach. We have a Redeemer who can move us from an outsider to a son, to a daughter, who makes us worthy. Though, like Ruth, we come offering nothing. That we come totally dependent on another. Jesus is even better than Boaz. Boaz swore with his life that he would redeem Ruth and Naomi. Jesus swore by laying down his life. to redeem those who come to him in faith. Let me encourage you this morning with this quote from Richard Sips. who reminds us we cannot please Christ better than by showing ourselves welcome, by cheerfully taking part of his rich provision It is an honor to his bounty to fall to. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful Redeemer, we confess our great need. our need for forgiveness, our need for life, our need to get through each day. God, we thank you for your great mercy towards undeserving people like us. God, we pray that as we look at your word as we dwell on it would you change us by it would you give us an an increasingly clearer picture of what you are like God would you give us boldness to approach you not because of anything we do or we have done but because we know how joyfully you forgive us, how joyfully you hear us, how joyfully you provide and care for your children. God, as we behold all these things, would you change us by them? That our lives too would display your character. That we would have opportunities to care for those you've put in our lives. That you would be glorified through that. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who does not know the great need that they are in, who does not know the great danger that they are in. Lord, would you convict them of their sin? 
would they run to you? And Lord, would you joyfully welcome them with open arms? In Jesus' name, amen.